Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. Every three weeks, Father Jeffrey and I release an hour-long episode regarding an aspect of Orthodox life. However, only patrons get access to the last half hour of our discussion. If you'd like to hear the rest of this conversation, you can head over to pryingpriest.com support. But for now, enjoy the first half of this double feature. We are back with another episode of Enacting the Kingdom, talking about autocephaly, a very complicated, confusing word, autocephaly. And Father Jeffrey, you're not the, we're not the only two priests in the room right now. I, I feel like uh, this is a marvelous and watershed moment in our podcast. It is. We've been, actually, we've been going for almost a year without a guest. It's because you're so brilliant, Father Jeffrey. But uh, <laughs> I, I thought it's time to bring in you know, some more talent to add glory to glory for our <laughs> podcast. So we have a guest for today's double feature where we're going to be having an hour-long discussion on autocephaly with not only a father, a priest in the Orthodox Church, but my father, Father Bogdan Hladio. Welcome, Father Bogdan, to the Enacting the Kingdom podcast. Thank you. Um, so he, I know what everyone's thinking. Well, he's just bringing him on because he's his dad. No, no, no. No, no, no. Uh, Father Bogdan uh, just finished, uh, uh, well, last year he finished a thesis and actually at Trinity College it won Best Thesis this year, didn't it? Yes. And um, it's about uh, this topic of autocephaly and exploring that. So, Father Bogdan, would you mind giving a bit of an introduction to yourself and uh, as well as including some of that thesis stuff in there as well without getting into the nitty gritty because we're going to talk about that a bit later? Yes. Well, I'm originally from Western Pennsylvania. My wife is a Toronto girl, so that's how I ended up in Canada. And I've been a priest for 32 odd years now. And I'm a priest of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Canada in uh, 2014-2015. Father Jeffrey um, was a very good evangelist for the Orthodox School of Theology at Trinity College at the University of Toronto. And since all of my children were out of the house, I decided it might be nice to actually go and get another degree. So I did that MTS. And as you mentioned, the um, topic of the thesis was autocephaly, specifically as it related to the autocephaly, which was uh, bestowed upon the Orthodox Church in America in 1970. And so I had the opportunity to explore, you know, not just in general, the topic of autocephaly, but how that played out within the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, how it was received by, you know, the ecumenical patriarchate and other Orthodox churches. And because of that, I'm here today. Wonderful. And there's a lot of complicated words that even, even people that have been Orthodox for a long time, even a word like autocephaly can be quite elusive sometimes. So, just like any good discussion, I think we should probably start with defining some terms. So I'm going to present, Father Bogdan, I'm going to present a quick definition of autocephaly, and you can let me know if that's actually getting after what it actually means. So 
could you characterize autocephaly as you know the fancy word that you know orthodox people use to talk about a a unique church jurisdiction having its own independence that could be a very sort of simple understanding of it but i think probably the first thing to say is that the word itself autocephaly um literally means being the head of yourself you know or self ruled however you want to put it it's actually you know an older word it's it's one of those words that comes into existence to describe an extant reality so that you don't find the word autocephaly in the scriptures or in the canons etc but um the word itself has changed meaning so if you were to use that word you know 1500 1500 years ago today uh you would if it was understood at all probably it would be understood in different ways at all of those times mhm so autocephaly you you're mentioning kind of the the technical meaning of it would be like having your, your self heading right or self leadership yeah. or something like that yeah. which is i guess a bit different than independence um yes well there's always the issue that we look at it as an administrative reality more or less but above that reality there's obviously the more important uh christian church ecclesial reality of the faith and so like any particular self-ruled church or self-headed church even independent church if you want to use that word uh still are bound by all of the same the canons the uh teachings of the faith etc like no one uh on the basis of autocephaly could ever you know claim to be able to say well you know there is a fourth member of the holy trinity and her name is mary or anything like that so dogmatically uh there really is no difference and you couldn't um uh support a new dogmatic teaching on the basis of autocephaly it really is restricted in that sense simply to um administrative matters within a particular church although uh again we'll get into this later but politically it has become more than that mm-hmm. father jeffrey do you want to hop in with anything here yeah i i completely agree with um father bogdan's um definition and characterization and also the the kind of elusive nature of of the definition through time i think it it really is a an historically contextualized you know term and and oddly too i mean um it, this really does pertain only to eastern christianity um the mm. the term really has never been used elsewhere even though and i'll be talking about this i hope during the course of this podcast there are analogous church communions um elsewhere which have very very similar uh polity and practice and so forth but the term is never used there so it, if you you know ever look up autocephalus anywhere you'll find that it always refers back then to sort of eastern and orthodox national churches um in a pe- peculiar sense so th- there is something other than just simply autonomy freedom of self government and the interdependence that that's implied by that there's something peculiar about the historical context of eastern christianity which of course itself has evolved through time so we really are talking about something uh that as a term that really applies only to the orthodox church mm-hmm. 
So, you know, if I were to think of, well, let's say the biggest Christian church in the world is the Catholic church. And in the Catholic church, you have this one, you have this one figure, the Pope, right? The Pope of Rome who acts as this unifying figure, right? So you have these churches across the world, but if you're, if you're united with the Pope in communion, then you are part of that sort of worldwide church. But it seems that orthodoxy has this, I guess, in the, in, in the modern day has this concept of autocephaly where you have a lot of these different churches that have self-governance but there's no kind of single figure that unites them all aside from perhaps christ but i'm wondering how how does how can we compare an orthodox model of autocephaly father bogdan with maybe that that catholic model of of having that one unifying figure of the pope does that question make sense yes one of the reasons that we're not Roman Catholic is because we do not agree that there should be one, you know, person who is a unifying figure in the way that the Pope of Rome is. Although the issue of primacy is also a troublesome issue for the Orthodox Church, as uh, Metropolitan Callistos Ware has said, you know, the the Roman Catholic Church has issues with conciliarity, and the Orthodox Church has issues with primacy, and there are problems on both sides of that divide. The orthodox polity uh, reflects more the polity we read about in the early church, you know, with the apostolic, post-apostolic fathers, where the bishop eventually became the, um, if you want to call it, the uh, means of unity. Uh, he mediated the unity between all of the individual Christian communities. Mm -hmm. And so this is where we have the idea that the church is fully the church in every single community where the Eucharist is celebrated. And then the bishop is the one who, when needed, will have interactions in originally with the bishops in the um, surrounding areas. And then later on, certain um, sees certain cathedras are given or regarded as being more authoritative. So you have things like, you know, the Epistle of Clement uh, of Rome to the Corinthians, etc., where they are actually at least offering counsel, if not, you know, eventually sitting in judgment upon the bishops of other sees. So this is uh, how in one sense, we can say that, you know, the orthodox polity, even given the current reality of autocephaly, is reflective of a uh, primitive Christian vision of the church in that the bishops are the, you know, they mediate the unity among the various local churches. Yeah, so if, I, if I'm picking up what you're putting down, it seems that in any situation in which the church has to function on kind of a bigger scale, there's, there's a tension that exists with how, how do you actually function. And, and you can go in the direction of, well, let's just have one figure that acts as the unifying principle. But then the other side would be, well, let's have like a whole community of people that would act uh, you know, in union together. And, and those things are things that are, you know, it's perhaps... Um, you can kind of go in one direction or the other. Father Jeffrey, is there anything you wanted to uh, add to this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think in principle that that all makes sense. There's a slight irony, of course, that probably over the last half century, if you were simply as an objective observer to look at 
churches east and west, you mightn't draw that same conclusion. In other words, um, the church that on a local level, as well as on an international level, that is acting more conciliary, um, so on a council basis, um, versus the one that's operating more on a kind of you know, primacy basis or you know, churches going their own way and in, in independence and, and so forth, you would be hard pressed to say that the Eastern Orthodox churches were the ones where the conciliarity was being expressed. I, I think, for example, of the way that the Roman Catholic bishops in Canada operate, you know, very much on a, on a conciliar basis. And they, they meet regularly, they speak with, with one common voice, they're able to prophetically address issues in society and the way that orthodox bishops here operate is is you know put to, to shame in fact oddly enough the orthodox bishops in canada generally only get together when there's also a catholic uh, gathering that they have also been invited to and it, it's not an accident that, that that has has happened so i mean there is the theory the theology which is embedded in in our tradition which says yes we go to councils before we go to kind of you know, singular leaders or whatever, but sadly, it's not necessarily how we have always operated. And if you look like look at figures like the Patriarch of Moscow, or even some would say the Ecumenical Patriarch, you know, kind of forging their own path uh, outside of you know conciliar action. Um, you know, the whole history of the last hundred years, the introduction of new calendar or of, of other kinds of, of things, has taken place in a less than conciliar fashion in in the Orthodox Church. So although we're always called back, I think, to our primary theology here and our our basis in tradition, um, it's not always how we've acted, which is unfortunately part of the problematic of autocephaly in the church today. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to keep sketching out autocephaly in the Orthodox Church today and how it's used. And, and one of the ways I want to do that is by just simply asking how many churches actually have autocephaly in the world today, Father Bogdan? Well, that depends who you talk to. Mm. Uh, the ones who are universally recognized, you know, include, you know, the ancient patriarchates of, you know, Antioch and Alexandria and Constantinople and then Jerusalem and Cyprus and then uh, Moscow, which... Uh, achieved some type of freedom in this 15th, 16th century. And then the newer uh, autocephalous churches, which are a result generally, but not exclusively, of the um, falling apart of the Ottoman Empire, which include the Balkans, you know, Bulgaria and Serbia, Romania, you know, Albania later on. Um, you have Poland, which received autocephaly in 1924 from the Ecumenical Patriarchate, 1948 from the um, Moscow Patriarchate, Czechoslovakia, vice versa, from the Moscow Patriarchate in 51 and from the Ecumenical Patriarchate in 98. Um, so then you have the issue of the Orthodox Church in America, which was unilaterally given autocephaly by Moscow in 1970. Uh, you have the much contested Ukrainian autocephaly of 2019 and uh, 2018, 19. And so if you count the OCA and the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, that gives us 16 that are recognized at least in part as autocephalous, at least in, by part of the um, other Orthodox churches. 
And, and you also have uh, Orthodox churches which claim autocephaly, but it is not recognized by any of the uh, recognized autocephalous churches, you know, such as the church in Macedonia and and um, the church in Jornagora, uh, um, Montenegro, right? Mm -hmm. That they are, in fact, acting in an autocephalous manner and are seeking autocephaly, but uh, they do not uh, have it in any, you know, recognized form. Yeah, I guess, like, can it, I guess that would answer one of my questions, which is, can a church just declare itself autocephalous? That, in fact, is the way it has happened for virtually all of the newer autocephalous churches, uh, practically speaking, you know, with Russia, um, with uh, Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, sort of, but not quite. They they generally um, we they asked and were it was bestowed, etc. So that does happen, undoubtedly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Father Jeffrey, Father Jeffrey, I want to give you an opportunity to hop in if there's anything you want to add. No, I mean, I think that was extremely accurately expressed and, and very charitably as well. I mean, the very fact of asking any Orthodox, you know, what are the local or autocephalous, you know, churches is, you know, immediately to introduce the problem, right? So uh, the, the topic of today's podcast is, is a timely one. It's an important one. Um, but, you know, and I think this is maybe where this discussion, you know, can go as we as we move it forward here. But in, it, it's odd in some ways, if you kind of step back a little bit and say, you know, what are we actually talking about here? It, and it is really a, a, a matter of administration, of kind of pragmatic organization of, you know, just how can the church most uh, efficiently achieve its aims of mission in the world, right? And yet it has become, and, you know, over time more and more so, this kind of very fraught, deeply held, you know, profoundly theological and, and also wrapped up in all the kind of feelings of nationalism and, and so forth issue, which it, it really needn't be, right? Because it doesn't ultimately touch any of those fundamental aspects of our ecclesiology, our understanding of church mission and so forth that Father Bogdan, you know, eloquently spoke to, you know, in the early church and, and so forth. I mean, we're talking about the fact that borders change, that countries grow and expand and divide over time and empires collapse and new nations arise. I mean, these are just facts of human history. And the church really needs to just simply operate within time and space in, a, in an effective manner. And we have got to the point where I think it's not controversial to suggest we have a dysfunctional church polity. You know, it, we do not adequately respond to those historical contingencies, uh, changing realities of, you know, national borders and, and, and population movements and everything in anything like a sane fashion, right? And it becomes this deeply, deeply problematic issue that, you know, a, a church just trying to organize itself to meet the needs of its people has to go through these convulsions and rebellions and, and arguments, and it takes decades, if not centuries, to resolve. I mean, it, it really doesn't have to be this way when all it's about is just simply saying, what's the best way to organize ourselves in this particular area at this particular time, right? Without at all undermining or compromising our, you know, 
ancient church self-understanding that Jesus Christ is the head, that that the church is organized around one common faith, one sharing in sacraments, uh, and you know the, the the organization of bishops, presbyters, and deacons, and you know th- that model can just replicate and and spread throughout the world, but just organized in slightly different ways according to the needs of, of history. But it has become this deeply, deeply divisive and problematic issue, and. I, you know, if you step back a couple of, uh, of paces here and you look at this, you sort of wonder, why does it have to be this way? And as I hinted earlier, you know, there are other models. And I mean, I'll, I'll name the one that is really the closest, uh, because in every respect, ecclesiologically, it is the shared one. And that's the Anglican Communion, um, you know, which is organized in 165 countries on earth across 41 you could say autocephalous churches, although they don't use that term. They they, they use other you know terms for it. But when the borders change, when new political realities emerge, there there aren't these massive convulsions. They just simply reorganize and redistribute and and uh, establish you know whatever uh, system is is necessary under whatever structures there are. And I just think there's something altogether much more rational and sane about that uh, than what we seem to have, you know, evolved within our practice. And and for all kinds of historical reasons, I'm sure Father Bogdan, you know, would would be able to speak to these, you know, the the kind of romantic nationalism of the 19th century had a huge effect on Orthodox uh, thinking. And and it's, it's very little of it would come from any sort of deep ecclesiological or theological principles here. It really is just how history has affected us. And honestly, I think it's time to step back and say, what is this all about? You know, these are not necessary aspects of our church life or understanding. And why are we holding ourselves prisoners to this and making such a big deal out of something that is just purely administrative? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think I want to learn a little bit more about that kind of connection with nationalism and, and kind of the modern nation state. Father Bogdan, would you mind speaking a little bit about kind of how some of the Orthodox churches have pursued autocephaly kind of in the context of nation states and nationalism? Well, very interesting what Father Jeffrey says about the, um, if you want to call it the vision or the practice within the Anglican communion, because in the earlier church, once it had become, you know, the state church, it was basically an imperial model. And, You had this also within England. England was a great empire, right? And so you had the Byzantine Empire. You had the attempts of the Serbian and the Bulgarian, um, we'll call them the political realities uh, in the Middle Ages, who attempted to have autocephalous churches as part of an imperial project for them, you know, the Bulgarian Empire, the Serbian Empire, those, of course, fell apart later on. And then you have the Russian, um, well, the Muscovite, actually, not Russian, but the Muscovite, uh, it's generally regarded as a self-declaration of autocephaly in uh, 1448, following the uh, Council of uh, Florence Ferreira. And up to that point, you have no conception of a nation state. You know, in the early church, it was all communities. 
that all got folded into empires. And so the, you know, eparchial diocesan structures become uh, assimilated to the um, political uh, divisions, which were called eparchies or dioceses. Uh, and so they become sort of co-territorial with the political realities. And then this goes on as an imperial project until after the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, which ended the Thirty Years' War. And you, at that point, have the um, the principle um, uh, cuius regio ius religio, whatever the religion of the you know king or prince or whoever the civil leader is, whatever his or her religion is, that is the religion of the people. And this is the beginning of, if you want to call it really like state churches in terms of nation states, or um, on the other side of it, some type of uh, religious toleration, because those who were not of the faith of the monarch, uh, generally speaking, would either have some degree of toleration within that realm, or they would be permitted to move to a realm where the monarch was of their religious persuasion. And so it's following 1648 that you get this idea of native state uh, of nation state. And then when the Ottoman empire begins to fall apart, to break apart, and you start to see these nation states, I mean, we're celebrating this year, the 200th anniversary of the Greek revolution, right? So Greece, you know, declares autocephaly because you know, they don't want their church to be under uh, a patriarch who is in a foreign country, right? Even though he's a Greek and they're Greeks, but they want to have an independent church in an independent state. And it's worth reminding ourselves that the monarchs of these new Balkan states generally, you know, were Western European, you know, King Otto of, was from Germany, and he was the first, you know, monarch of uh, the modern Greek state, right? So this idea comes in that where there's a free nation state, then there should be a, an independent church as well. And this begins to happen, as I said, in uh, 1821 with Greece, and then it goes on through the Balkans. And as the Ottoman Empire breaks up, later on after World War I, you have the issue, uh, same issue with Poland, which becomes a nation state after World War I with a substantial minority of Orthodox people in it. Uh, in the, in the uh, Baltic states, the same thing is happening. In Albania in the, in the 1930s, etc. And so this is really where the disjuncture comes. In the early church, it's all based on community. In the imperial model, it's based on the empire, like the empire has its own church, Right. And then you break down into the nation states after 1648. And so the nation state becomes the model. And the interesting question nowadays is, you know, living in a, in a global world, uh, what would autocephaly look like in a global world? And this comes back to what Father Jeffrey said earlier about how do you organize things up? And to that point, um, I think that the, the operative dynamic for most of the dysfunction, and, and he's right in calling it dysfunction, the operative dynamic, I really think, is one of fear. Because if you really consider it, you consider all of the Orthodox lands, you know, the Middle East, the Balkans, uh, the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, etc., 
they were all greatly, greatly traumatized over the past several hundred years by persecution in one form or another. And uh, as, you know, for example, the current pandemic, the um, reality of that pandemic affects us all as human beings and affects us uh, corporately as social groups, whether it be a church or an organization or whatever, uh, those, uh, what do you call it, those social pressures that we find ourselves living under, well, as they affect us, they cannot help but affect the church. And so I think many of these various dysfunctions uh, really aren't going to go away until we deal with the uh, remnants of that fear which people quite rightly experienced over hundreds of years. That isn't going to go away in a day or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, if I could jump in there, because I, yeah. I, I think I mean, it leads to a number of, of different things here, but I, I, this model of you know, moving beyond empire into current political realities, I think has to be one of the operative frameworks here, right? So what we're really talking about is what does a post-colonial, you know, uh, ecclesiology, you know, look like? And and I think to compare, again, with, say, the Anglican communion, which also went through, obviously, how do you deal with organizing the church after empire, you know, post-colonially, for, you know, and there's a whole lot of trauma associated with that and and it was not an easy process but the the transition has has maybe been a little bit more complete than what we've seen in you know eastern europe and you know as sort of the remnants of byzantine stroke ottoman empire and then obviously the, the empires uh, of russia including in and through you know soviet uh, times and, and so forth so it's it's maybe early days in terms of dealing with some of the colonial trauma in, in the east but I think part of the problem, though, is just at that particular moment when that romantic nationalism hit, you know, maybe what that led to in throughout the the world and, you know, was ultimately the kind of revolutionary movements about, you know, disassociating from the crown or about, you know, staying in the Commonwealth, but, but achieving independence and standing on one's own as a nation state. I mean, that has affected a lot of the provinces and dioceses and, and churches of the Anglican Communion, whereas in the in the Christian East, because it was so complicated by you know the Ottoman Empire and then ultimately the rise of of different kinds of of uh, totalitarianisms in the twentieth century, the re- the result was that that nationalism has been kind of embedded at a deeper level and in a level that that is you know much more essential almost to to people, right? So that rather than simply seeing it as well, the best way to organize our church here in this place is, you know, independently because we have our own laws that govern, you know, us. And it makes sense that we're independent from the the others who share our same faith across the border because they have different laws that they have to respond to and they have to operate in a slightly different context. Father Bogdan mentions, you know, the pandemic. And yes, it's a perfect illustration of this because it shows how much of this you know, is deeply human, affects us all, but yet the responses to that were were veriform. You know, you had very different laws in Canada uh, than you did across the border uh, in the United States. And consequently, you know, I'm a part of the Orthodox Church in America, which operates as 
quote-unquote autocephalous church, but you know, straddling both Canada and the United States. And that was highly problematic that we are one church in those two jurisdictions because, you know, what was applicable south of the border was not applicable in Canada. And it really made things extremely difficult. You could even argue that had we had a, an autocephalous church here in Canada of all the Orthodox, uh, that should also be organized with dioceses that reflect the provincial borders because things were different province to province, right? So the the pandemic is global the the effects of it are are global and yet the the practical outworking of how you respond in terms of church openings and closures and and practice and so forth needed to respond to the legislative and policy framework of, of very particular jurisdictions and that dysfunction of orthodox ecclesiology or at least the, the practical ecclesiology was manifest, right? In the kind of, we just didn't know what to do or how to act. And, and bishops who were supra jurisdictional in terms of straddling some of these borders, you know, th their decrees made no sense in one part or another of, of where they had, you know, authority. So I think it's a perfect illustration of really needing to sort of say, like, despite history, we need to move to a place where the organization of the church in any time or place needs to be historically contingent to some extent. The, the administration needs to reflect what we need to do practically. If we are going to be the church and, and fully enact the, the kingdom and, and the mission of God in, in our day, then we need to be organized in such a way that we can respond to things like pandemics, let alone to the greater mission needs of the world around us. And it means to kind of grow up a little bit and say, you know, some of our obsess obsession with and, and, and concern for things like, you know, national self-identity and, and, and so forth, we need to, you know, admit that this comes from a particular ver vision of nationalism embedded in 19th century romantic German idealism and so forth, and say we can leave some of that behind as we just simply organize the universal, you know, for all time church in all of our, you know, particular jurisdictions and areas today. And uh, I think, you know, the, the Anglican model is possibly a, a healthy one. You, met, you asked earlier about you know, what holds the church together in the absence of a central figure like the Pope? Well, Anglicans speak, I think, quite rationally about what they call the instruments of communion, right? And they make it very clear as part of the, the constitution of the Anglican communion that all churches need to adhere to a common faith. You know, in scripture, the apostles and Nicene creeds, the sacraments, the historic episcopate, uh, and so forth. And that, I mean, they even say this specifically, each church recognizes that the churches of the Anglican communion are bound together, not juridic, juridically, juridically, uh, juridically, yeah, by a central legislative, executive, or judicial authority, but by mutual loyalty maintained through the instruments of Anglican unity as an expression of that communion. In other words, there is no juridical central power, but it's this mutual faith and loyalty. And they've, this is how grown up they are. They, for example, have at every 10 years, 10-year uh, intervals, all the bishops of the Anglican church are invited together into a council. It took us, what, uh, you know, 
1,200 years or more to come up with another council of all the Orthodox bishops. It was controversial because, first of all, not all Orthodox bishops ended up being invited. And then secondly, not all of those who were invited attended. Um, and that's you know still a kind of blot on our record uh, in a way. And yet Anglicans, just as a normal course of things, say every 10 years, we're all going to get together and have what's called the, the Lambeth uh, Conference and so forth. So they have these instruments of communion and yet are able to you know, negotiate new political borders and situations. Right now, they're talking about setting up a new church in, in Africa because there's a Portuguese, you know, speaking, uh, you know, constituency. Uh, they want to set up 12 dioceses, uh, you know, around that. But, uh, you know, they're responding to the situation as it, as it evolves in the world without fundamentally changing what are these instruments of communion, you know, between them. Now, it's not perfect because they have deep theological divisions on, on some levels, but the point is as an as a form of governance, as a form of administratively setting up what is a you know a, a, an unchanging ecclesiology in the world, I think it's a model for for Orthodox to look to. And it's precisely because it's a post-colonial one, post-empire, in the way that you know Orthodox have to deal with as well. Yeah, just a couple of things to that, um, sort of in defense of the orthodox dysfunction. Um, one is that, as we know, in any revolution, those who revolt, you know, they revolt against the oppressors, and then they often will tend to become the oppressors themselves. And so this is why in the whole nation state model, when you have, you know, Greeks or Bulgarians or Serbians or whoever, who then achieve their own nation, they're going to want to have that type of, um, uh, if you want to say, cultural homogeneity and religious homogeneity uh, that is going to support the country. And so there's that element in it, which is perhaps one of the reasons why you have that nationalistic strain, which has remained within most of the autocephalous churches, as uh, Father Jeffrey mentioned. The other thing is regarding the um, ability of the Anglican Church to go in and uh, do this post-colonial project in organizing churches. I think the one difference there is that, you know, England was not uh, under being subjected by some other power. You know, so London was not under the thumb of, you know, Ankara or wherever. And so they didn't have that problem that existed and in the Ottoman Empire and in the Russian Empire, because we have to say, even though, you know, you had this idea of Holy Russia, uh, from the time of Peter the Great for 200 years, there was no patriarch and the church was really functionally a department of the state. So even within, you know, quote unquote, an Orthodox Empire, the church wasn't free. So I think that's the big difference between uh, the Anglican, uh, one of the big differences between the Anglican uh, ability to do this and the Orthodox inability to effectively do this. So uh, before we finish up the public half of the podcast, <clears throat> Um, I want to tease the audience a little bit. So if you're listening to this and you're not actually a patron of our podcast, you're only getting half of this episode and half of the podcast as a whole. So if you want to listen to the rest of this conversation in which we'll be tackling the issues between Ukraine and Russia, we'll be solving the issues of the OCA 
We'll be fixing all those problems on the second half of this interview. You can go to uh, uh, patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom and support as much as you like. And you get access to literally a whole second podcast, um, which is amazing. Um, But before we finish this public interview, Father Bogdan and Father Jeffrey, um, I want to get each of your takes on this. So if there's somebody out there who is just a regular Orthodox Christian who likes to, you know, goes to their church with their family and does not really have time or energy to be working through a lot of these autocephaly issues. And it's just something that does not come up for them on a day-to-day basis. They just want to, you know, remember God, say their prayers and go to church. And that's that. What is something that they perhaps should know or or how should they maybe approach kind of these bigger issues of autocephaly and church independence maybe like what's one thing they should keep in mind or should know i'll let uh, let's go with father bogdan first and father jeffrey and then we'll end there i would just say that they should remember that autocephaly is not a big issue the faith is a big issue saying your prayer is going to church receiving the holy mysteries that's a big issue and so you concentrate on that And, you know, as long as the church is really, you know, they're really preaching the gospel, they are really, um, uh, and teaching and manifesting the Orthodox faith, you know, as long as you don't have some odd stuff going on there, uh, the church is part of a greater church, which, uh, and preaches and lives out the faith, Well, that's what's important. All this, you know, autocephalus stuff and things like that, that really doesn't concern most anyone. And it honestly can lead people away from, uh, quote unquote, the church. Uh, Probably even there's a greater tendency that that might happen than that it will draw them into a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. And Father Jeffrey? Yeah, I'm 100% in agreement with that. I mean, which makes it so tragic and sad when these things do percolate down to the kind of local level. I mean, one of the things Father Bogdan said earlier, which is entirely true, the entire church subsists in the local Eucharistic assembly. So you have access not only in space, but through time to the whole one holy Catholic and apostolic church, when you join together in the divine liturgy and you receive communion, that there the whole church is manifest. And so how sad is it when, say, in the last few years, you know, you hear about, you know, Russian priests telling their congregants, don't go to the Greek Orthodox Church because of what's happening in Ukraine or, or, or whatever. And uh, I, what I try to do as a pastor, as a presbyter, as a local church leader is insulate <laughs> as much as possible my people from things like that. And, and the last thing I would ever do is tell them they're anything other than followers of Jesus Christ, those who proclaim Christ as Lord and King, communicants of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church who should be able to go anywhere within that communion and receive the sacraments and so forth. So to, to stay off of social media, other internet forums where these things are, are discussed, because ultimately I think, you know, time will tell that it, as we've been saying, these things are not where the essential aspects either of our faith are located, nor in terms of what we should be obsessing about during, you know, our earthly spell where we're supposed to be 
enacting the kingdom and not, you know, trying to find reasons to divide and and uh, oppose people and thwart the mission of the church. So precisely as Father Bogdan says, keep your eyes on Jesus and, you know, and communing in his life in the fullest sense and sharing that life with the world. That's where the, the important thing is. And hopefully, eventually, we'll all grow up and we can put some of these other things behind us. You've just finished listening to another public episode of Enacting the Kingdom. If you're getting value from this podcast and you'd like to support the show, you can head over to pryingpriest.com to become a patron. Also, five-star ratings with written reviews go a long way to getting the word out there about this show. Also, since Enacting the Kingdom is social media free, any word of mouth recommendations you can make to your friends and family would be greatly appreciated. We'll see you next time.